Hi friends, I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. And we are Podcast by Proxy. Welcome. We're live. <laughs> so how was your reading break you were on today? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well... <laughs> So I'm we're we're gonna be on a wild ride. I feel like I always say that. That's becoming a theme. But basically the case today is a huge case that changed case law in Canada. And my idea was <laughs> and changed to, Olivia. <laughs> it also changed me and my soul today. But my idea was to do one episode covering the case for our podcast, our main feed, and then I was going to do a bonus episode for Patreon where I go into and like kind of break down the case law and why it changed and yada, yada, yada. And then I stumbled across a 300 page book on the case today. So I have been speed reading for the last two hours and the new plan is we're going to have part one and part two of this case and the trial and everything on the main feed. And then Patreon will still get an extra legal jargony episode for anybody who's interested in that. Um, but yeah, I finished the book. I just have to write the rest. Honestly, my plan was to record part one and then go right back to the couch and finish writing. Because it's the thing is, it's not like... I don't have all the information. It's like I'm pulling mm-hmm. information from 400 different sources, like court cases, news articles, books, and it's like I'm trying to make sense of them and compile them, and that's what I'm getting stuck on right now with this case. But hopefully everybody appreciates the level of work that went into this. <laughs> also, I had to pay $5 for this damn book, so... Support us on Patreon. <laughs> Help me pay for my resources. This was $4.99 on Apple Books. I was so desperate. I couldn't get a paper copy. I found the book. It was on Apple Books. So, anyways. Shall we begin? I love that you paid for a book and power read it. Oh, I pay for stuff all the time. That's the thing that people don't. I feel I feel like maybe is overlooked about this podcast. Like, sure, the mic and everything to get set up is not super expensive. You can do a lot of it for free. It's time consuming. But like, I'm constantly paying for I have to pay extra to get certain news articles even like I have to subscribe to news. I know things. I know to get the research because I now get the New York Times (laughs) notifications from our emails and I laugh every time because I was like this is not me (laughs) yeah no it's me just doing research that's true if anybody's looking to get into podcasting that is something you have to take into account is the initial setup and there's a ton of free programs yes that's great but as you progress and you want to improve because you want to genuinely be better it does start to cost money to do certain things and edit certain ways and advertise certain ways so well and like even our keep in mind. even our podcasting platform like it's free right now but up to a certain amount of episodes and then you have to pay for a subscription so like none of it's free anyway this wasn't about mm-hmm. how much podcasting costs i think we should no, just get into it for anyone looking to start yeah true yes let's 
do this. I think we should I'm just gonna, do it. I'm going to, like, stress roller icy hot myself while you start this, so. Okay. I'm ready. That sounds weird. No. Oh, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> no squeaky toys during recording. This should be a rule. This is the case of Krista and Karen Hart. We're going to start with okay. their father, Nelson. So Nelson was born Nelson Lloyd Hart in 1968. He was the eldest of three sons. One of his brothers was named Mervyn. I don't know what the other brother's name was, but I do know he had a brother named Mervyn. Um, all I thought of when you said Mervyn was like, Mervyn Mervyn, so I hope he turns out to be a decent guy. No, we really like Mervyn. He's a stand-up dude. Oh. Yeah, we like him. Okay. Yeah, we like him. Yeah. Good job, Mervyn. Your name sucks, but you're a cool guy. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so Nelson, when he was only nine months old, he got really sick. He developed an illness. His mother, Pearl Hart, um, she heard him struggling to breathe late one night in his crib, and... When she went to check on him, she said, quote, he was coal black in his crib. He had an extremely high fever and he was taken to the hospital where the doctors told him that he probably wouldn't make it. He ended up surviving and survived like the illness, but it triggered epilepsy in him. And this affected him like permanently for the rest of his life. Epilepsy did run in his family. His father had it. Um, So, like, he could have developed it at any time, but they think that the, like, high fever and the illness is what triggered it to, like, start, basically. Definitely. For sure. So, the epilepsy made it quite difficult for Nelson to have a normal childhood. Um, He was picked on a lot at school, and it also seems like he showed other signs of developmental delay early on, so I'm not sure if that was related to the illness or if he would have been that way anyways okay he like frequently had big seizure seizures at school that left him like disoriented and he was quite like like i don't know just kids made a lot of fun of him when he'd like have a seizure yeah, that's and a then, pretty yeah. it's a pretty big standout thing to happen so kids are naturally gonna point and poke fun kids are horrible yeah and then he he failed the fifth grade three times And so when he was 12, it was agreed by the school and his mom that he wasn't going to progress anymore and should just be taken out of school. His mom even agreed? Yep. They were just like, like, yeah, he's "Mm, kind of a lost cause. He's tapped his educational uh, (laughs) skills. We should just remove him. He's peaked. He's peaked at grade five. Yes. He has peaked. I don't even remember what the content was in grade five to actually have an opinion on how difficult grade five was. So, okay, let's move on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just also a big testament to, like, the time, like, the era that we're in at that point, the, the like, early 70s. Oh, yeah. And, like, that would never happen now. I think that was probably common back then if they school just, like, didn't know how to deal with someone. But anyway, he stayed home from then on and basically never developed a reading level or, like, anything level really beyond the fifth grade. Okay. Okay. Poor child. Yeah. So he gets older. Nelson did get a driver's license. However, it got taken away a bunch of times because of his his seizures. Like, he had them a lot. Even when he was medicated, yeah. he had them. And so it was really unsafe for him. Like, he really couldn't do anything by himself. Also, 
can he read difficult street signs? And I'm not trying to sound mean. I don't know. None of that really ever came up as like the most concerning thing. I'm pretty sure by that age he's probably learned like the basics. Yeah, I think he he figured out how to get around. And like he felt like being able to drive was like the only thing he had going for him. Like his driver's license was his identity. And so every time his license. It's even freedom. Well, every time he had his license taken away, it was like earth shattering. And so we'll see okay. moving forward that he will, okay. he'll just start to like lie about the seizures that he's having so that he doesn't get his license taken away. Yeah. So he, I hear a trigger coming on. Yeah. Yeah. He did start taking his medication in his 20s. Um, it helped the seizures, but I also think okay. from everything that I've kind of read and gathered that he wasn't responsible enough to take his meds regularly. Like, he needed somebody there to be like, it's time to take your yeah. meds. So if somebody wasn't doing that for him, he just wouldn't take I know some people like it. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. By his mid-20s, he was jobless, living at home. Um, he was living at home with his mother, Pearl, and she had a new common-law husband. And him and Nelson were constantly fighting. And at one point, Nelson, like, threatened to kill him. So the dude was like, yeah, he's got to go. Uh, he was yeah, known... near him, babe. Yeah, he just, like, had a lot of random bursts of anger. And, like, we see that continued as well, that he'll just kind of snap. And he calls it, like, having a fit. Okay, I think that's a bit more than a fit, but I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah. I'm sure I'll have a lot of feelings. Yeah, I'm actually quite interested to hear your thoughts on this case because I will say, like, this case is really sad. Like, just before we go any further, this case is truly, on every level, devastating. Um, So welcome to my life for the past week and today. But I am interested to hear your thoughts on everything as we progress. He, so he's kicked out of the family home and told to go live on his own. Uh, living on his own, his seizures started getting worse. And sorry, how old is he at this point again? Uh, like mid to late 20s. Okay. Anyone over the age of 20 who lives at home who's listening, at this point, if you are a functional adult and can live on your own and they kick you out, you can't say anything. They have been too good to you already. Well, I think the biggest thing here good. was that he had a lot of behavioral issues. He was, like, not working, so he was at home all the time. And, like, we'll kind of get an idea of what he does while he's at home later. But, like, he's, you know, abusive, for lack of a better term. I'm sure he doesn't treat his mom very well. The stepdad was probably just like, get the F Pearl. up. Get the F out of here, bro. Pearl's not my favorite either, but I still, I think that, like... I just like the name. He is... Like, classically, and I know that there's, like, I think there's mental health things and there's developmental things there, but he's also, in my opinion, like, full-blown narcissist, manipulative, abusive, like, the whole nine yards. Yeah, just because you're one doesn't mean you can't be the other, Mm -hmm. and that's why mental health is such a spectrum. Yeah. So, anyways, he's living on his own. His seizures get worse. Uh, I think probably his lack of meds, stress, uh, inability to take care of himself. The situation gets so bad that in October of 1997, the provincial government actually arranged for him to receive home care. Oh. I don't know if the person was living there or would just, like, come and then leave, but the government paid for home care for him. So, I know someone who was... 
uh, kind of in a similar situation, and I think that they had home care as well, and it was someone that would just come by at certain times of day and make mm-hmm. sure they took their medication, um, and it wasn't, uh, like, round the clock or live-in. It was strictly just, like, to check in and do the scheduled programming. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's kind of what this sounded like. Like, she would come over, help him clean up, make sure he took his meds, just, like, kind of general basic life care. So, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to meet Jennifer Hicks. Jennifer Hicks was the youngest of four daughters. Her mother, Gertrude, was the sole provider for their family. Her, her father, Cyril, actually became disabled when she was quite young, like when she was a toddler. He worked as a cook and a fisherman, and he was often away at sea for like six months at a time. And when she was really young, a piece of the ship's rigging slammed into his leg and permanently disabled him. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So from That's a young a age, Jennifer and her three sisters ended up helping around the house, like cleaning up and cooking and stuff quite a bit so that their mom could go to work. Um, she worked as a home caretaker, home caretaker at night, and then she would sleep during the day, and that's when the girls would kind of do chores and everything like that because their father couldn't really do anything or at the beginning. Okay, that seems really fair. I did a lot of chores growing up because my mom was in school and working. So, yeah, yeah, if if that's how your house works, you just pick up the slack where it's needed. Yeah. Um, So Jennifer's best friend growing up was actually her her older sister, Susan. When Jennifer was 16 years old, she decided to drop out of school to help out her sister. Susan had three kids by the age of 21. Um, The oldest was five years old and her two toddlers both had cerebral palsy. Whoa. So they needed a lot of extra help, and so Jennifer decided to just stop going to school. I was to just help already them. saying, yeah, I was already saying whoa because I was impressed that if she had, what her youngest would have been born at like what fifteen or sixteen probably then, mm-hmm. and to have three that is so impressive yeah. to be just, she must be a powerhouse. But then on top of that, to have a very like large health concern as well in two of your children must be. So difficult. Yeah. So Jennifer took a lot of the caretaking of that on. She seemed to really like to help people in need. Like she liked to feel needed. Sounds like a nurse. Like someone who would grow up to be a nurse. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, So Susan was also in school studying business administration at the local community college. Um, The two sisters ended up moving to the town of Gander, Newfoundland. This is all taking place in like a tiny little town in Newfoundland. And they moved to Gander. I love that name, Gander. Let me take a Gander. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. Uh, okay, so the Let girls, take a gander. they're both accepted yes. into business admin at the local college in Gander, but Jennifer obviously had to finish her GED in order to do this, but she was kind of just happier being a caretaker and helping people. She didn't really want to go to school, so she told Susan that she was going to stay home and take care of the kids while Susan went to school. Fair. Let me live my life. Yeah, but then Susan kind of decides that, like, Jennifer is young and needs to have a life of her own, and she just kind of feels like she's taking on too much for her. So she quits college as well and focuses on her family, which gives Jennifer quite a bit of time to herself. 
She, okay. She didn't Fair. want to start yeah. making money, um, but she knew that without like a high school or a college education, she said her best bet would be to try and get a job in home care or serving. Yeah, tips are a big addition to your overall income. Yeah, exactly. I don't blame her for going that route. Yeah, servers make banks. Yeah. Sometimes they can make bank. I'm not going to say servers make bank. Because I know that some, like servers, serving, you can also make no money. Give a shit I've been personality. There, so. <laughs> like me. <laughs> no, I, well, yeah. No, literally. Like me. I'm kidding. I, I could never be a server either because you can read my face just like you. Mm-hmm. So it's like if I'm in a mood. It's gonna cut, even though my voice and my mouth and my everything will be trying to say nice. Yeah. My face will say shit. And it's hard for me. I mean, if you're a regular listener of ours, I feel like you know by now that I'm quite monotone. (laughs) And it's hard for me to like really turn it on and act like I'm super excited about your burger when I don't give a shit. (laughs) And it comes through. Yeah, because your voice goes excessively high then. <laughs> yeah. Because so, it's so overtly customer service that you're like, ah. I do have a customer service voice. It's a good one. It's very professional. It's just not serving. Like, I'm just not like a top quality server. Anyways, I'll get you your food on time. I just won't do it like with bells and whistles. There's a restaurant where you go there specifically to get shit service, and maybe you should work there. Mm, I'm, like I'm, you can insult the customers, you can just be rude to them, and it's part of the experience. I don't want to be rude. I'm just not like super bubbly like, and over you don't the have top. To be nice. Yeah, I retired you can from just serving. Say what you think. But I, I retired. I'm not doing that ever again. <laughs> Hopefully. Fingers okay. crossed. Fair then. Okay. But Jen, okay, so I, as we've heard, wasn't the best server. <laughs> Jennifer was great. She was quick, hardworking. The customers liked her. She really liked bringing home tips, um, and she was enjoying her work and having a busy social life. So there's one morning, Jennifer and Susan were actually walking to a doctor's appointment nearby where they lived um, in their apartment building in Gander. It was for one of Susan's daughters, and Susan realized that she forgot some papers that she needed. Jennifer okay. was like, I'll go get them. No biggie. She, like, turns around and runs to go back to the apartment. Beep, back to the house. Yep. Yeah. And Nelson, whom at the time she was just, like, a weird guy, just stood right in the middle of the sidewalk and, like, smiled at her. And Didn't blocked. let her pass. Correct. Ugh. Yeah. Instant willies. Yeah. Heebs. That's how she felt as well. She was like, I don't feel comfortable with this at all. And like, she'd kind of noticed him before too around the building, just like staring at her. Like this wasn't the first time that she had seen him. And so she like did manage to get around him and go back to the building. But when she looked back, he was like laughing. Weird. Ew. Yeah, so her friend Nicole... Rose face? Yeah, her friend Nicole lives in the same building and was like, yeah, that's Nelson Hart. Um, And she was like, Dean, who is Nicole's boyfriend, is helping him move units here. Like, he lived there. So this apartment complex, it's called Edgewood Apartments in Gander. And it's like three different buildings. So they have like building one, building two, building three. So she was like, yeah, Dean is moving him from one complex. We have a lot like that here. Yeah, he was, like, moving units from, like, one to the other. So this guy was helping him. And so Jennifer explains to Nicole that Nelson was, like, blocking her path 
randomly by the building and he had done it more than once. And Nicole said that she knew there was some health issues with him and that he does have a home care worker over to help, but that he did seem like a nice guy. It's around this point of the conversation that Dean like bolts down, starts screaming, saying that Nelson was dying because he was having a seizure in the apartment and Dean didn't know what to do. He was like, he's dying! Which I mean, I guess fair if you're young and not really sure what it is and you're just the first time seeing someone go through like a traumatic medical incident. I guess maybe, but maybe just don't yell someone's dying unless you're sure they're dying yeah so he's dying (laughs) nicole and jennifer obviously like run up the stairs and run into the room and jennifer like pushes everyone to the side and jumps in to help because she had dealt with seizures before because one of her sisters had had seizures when they were younger the next time that she saw nelson was back at nicole and dean's place and she like they kind of just started to hang out here and there and she started to think that like maybe he wasn't such a bad guy after all and she actually asked him like um why did you stand and block my path and Mm -hmm. he was like that was the only way that i knew how to tell you that i liked you that was the only way Mm -hmm. that was the only way he knew how to literally being like hey i like you as she runs by (laughs) would have been better correct anything would have been better. just a drive by hey i like you literally anything would have been better like you Hey, I like Anything, you. buddy. Yeah. Throw her a paper airplane. Yeah. Leave a sticky note on her door. You know, buddy, you should have really put a more thought into this. It's a good, like, understanding of where he's at socially, though. Definitely. Yeah. So, there's Stunted. that. Stunted. Yeah, there's, it's just like a really good... Uh, it gives you a good grasp of like where he's at mentally and like how his brain works and how developed it is or underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so it's late 1997. Nelson and Jennifer are getting pretty cozy and she decides to move in with him like really early on. He basically is just like, hey, you should live here. And she's like, she's like, okay. I agree. Well, I think she was excited like. She lived with her sister and her sister's kids in one apartment. And so, like, she's excited at the prospect of, like... She's getting her own home. Getting her own place and, like, starting her own little life with somebody who she really likes at this point. Mm-hmm. And also, it seems like she was attracted to the fact that, like, she was kind of like, he needed my help. She liked that she was going to be able to caretake for somebody still. That's his last name. I want to see who this guy is. Looks like. Heart. H-A-R-T. Okay. You're gonna be horrified. Because, like, you said he was already a weirdo, and then she ends up marrying him? Like, what? Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I just needed a visual before we move forward. Proceed. Okay. Now I'm even... (gasps) Everybody else just Googled it, too. Let's all Google together. Okay, so sometime after this, when they first start dating, she moves in, yada, yada, yada. They're, like, taking a friend to the hospital in St. John's, which is a couple hours away. And they get into a... Nathan Lamb. 
in Newfoundland. That's exactly it. Newfoundland, for everybody who doesn't know, is a province on the east coast of Canada. It's sort of like an <laughs> island like where we live. It's just on the other side of the country. <laughs> We're mirroring. Yeah, it's a very similar vibe, just on the other side of the country. <laughs> Everywhere, Everyone in Newfoundland is literally so nice. I've been there. It's, qu- it's quite nice there. Yeah. Uh, but they're on their way back from taking this friend to the hospital and they get in a car accident and Nelson actually broke his C2 vertebrae, which is your neck slash back and incredibly painful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Isn't that like, yeah, it's like right at the base of the neck, like right at the top of the spine. Yeah. Very, very top. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, He did recover, but he began getting quite abusive with Jennifer after this. Uh, Like, I know I said that he had random fits of anger and stuff before, but it seems like after this accident and everything, it got way worse. Like, he would smash tables, put his fist through the walls. He would just, like, randomly yell at her. Um, And it actually got so bad at one point that she called her parents, who lived hours away, to come and get her. Whoa. Yeah, like, it was getting really bad. He would just, like, pick shit up and smash it randomly. Hulk smash! Pretty much. Kind of terrifying. Yeah, it is. And, like, that's kind of how physical abuse can start, too, right? Like, it starts with, like, them abusing your environment. Yeah, exactly. It's a huge red flag. your space and... Yeah, your space, things around you. Closer to you. And it's, like, making a statement that they can do harm. Yeah. So, so it's hurting dominance over you and your space, and that's terrifying. Yeah, like, punching a hole in a wall in front of you is still physical violence. I don't care what anyone yeah. says. So her parents go, they take her away to stay with them, and then Nelson starts incessantly phoning their house, asking her to come back, yes. saying it was just a bad mood, that everything would be okay. He gets his mother Pearl to call the house to say that he's not a bad guy and he really wants her to come mother home. Mother of Pearl? I told you that's this is starting to be why Pearl's like not my favorite because it's it's totally yeah, manipulative. No yeah, it's like As we've said before though, if your child does something wrong and they're a piece of shit, don't defend them as well. Mm-hmm. Make them accountable. Yeah, it's just very like again, it's it's classic abuse behavior. Yeah. So of course, she eventually decides to return thinking that maybe it was just this one time. Most women do. Yeah. So can't falter for it. No, not at all. Uh you'll see a lot of that throughout this though. And I would never okay. fault somebody for it because I think a lot of us have been there, even if we like mm-hmm. don't admit it to the people around us. Um, you know, a lot of us have been in this in similar situations. We all don't tell our friends and family everything because in the hopes that it works out, we don't want them to hate our spouse or yeah. partner. So yeah. we all have those things we haven't told anybody. So yes. Mm-hmm. So Jennifer returns, but at this point she's not working either. And they're both living on social assistance. Pretty quick after she moves back in, like, after this big fight where she left, she finds out that she's pregnant with twins. That's what I thought you were going to say. Whoa. Twins. Whammy. Yeah. So Nelson's response to finding out that she's pregnant was, quote, 
I guess it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, same. Literally. Literally, right? my, that was my same response. I'll leave it up to Frankie. She said all that needs to be said. Yeah, she really did. Um, And, like, this carries through the pregnancy and into him being a father. Like, he's non-supportive and terrible throughout her entire pregnancy. He, like, forces her to walk to doctor's appointments and won't give her money for a cab. <gasps> and she's pregnant with twins. Yes. Like, all your symptoms are setting in quicker. You're bigger. You're heavier. You're hotter. You're, oh, my yes. God. And then, so also, woman. when she got pregnant, he started to spend all of their money gambling at slot machines. Why does that not surprise me? So they would, like, get social assistance checks, and he would force her to give him all of the money, and then he would, like, give her an allowance. Because he clearly seems very financially responsible. And just, like, responsible in general. Yeah. Yeah. So, he started yeah, spending all their money on gambling at this point. Okay. We but, hate him, but okay. Yeah, we don't really like him a lot, but that's neither here nor there. So, Karen and Krista Hart, they're born via C-section on March 9th, 1999. Karen was the older of the two by about a minute, and she weighed 5 pounds, 8 ounces, and was just over a pound lighter than Krista. Jennifer said that as they okay. got older, even though the girls shared a room with two beds, they were often found in the same bed together. And when she was brought, Aww. when she brought them home, she was really hopeful that Nelson would show some interest in the girls, like being a father. <laughs> At the bare minimum. At the bare minimum. I mean, you can't force like maybe be people to want kids, but like, you know, she thought maybe he would give a little bit of a shit when they got there. Yeah, and I maybe just be upfront about it if you're not excited about it and you're not wanting those children. Like, set a realistic expectation. Don't let this woman go through this whole pregnancy letting her hope that you're going to get better. I mean, I think he was pretty... <laughs> upfront? I don't know that he was upfront and said, I don't want kids. He was just an asshole. And, like... But, like, read the room, buddy. Yeah, and I don't her. know. Like, Yeah. Okay. Fair. I don't know. So this obviously didn't happen. Jennifer was still recovering from a C-section and cared for the girls entirely on her own. Like, he, did, he didn't do anything. She's literally recovering from fucking surgery oh and caring for twins by herself. He barely spoke a word. Yeah. He spent all of his time sitting on the couch oh flipping channels on the TV. He didn't help put together the crib. Um, and he actually started to get jealous of the attention that Jennifer was giving to the girls. He was, like, pissed that she was giving her them so much treatment and or like attention and couldn't like give him attention fair but not fair i was gonna like, say I is it fair he would because he's a piece of shit because he's a shithead it's not fair to her and the family or anyone around him or that he shares space with no but he he did start to get quite jealous of the girls um and over the next two years jennifer had to literally beg him to give her enough money for diapers and baby formula because he was gambling it away on slot machines and would like get pissed that she needed money to feed their children oh my god yeah okay yeah so she only got the money that he gave to her like i said and he was gambling a considerable amount of it she eventually had to resort to going to like the salvation army and local food banks for help 
and Nelson told Jennifer that the girls were too expensive. He's like barely giving them money for food, formula, and diapers, but they're too expensive. But like, right? You're barely even taking care of them. But like, you can't afford to be gambling or at the bar. So what are you doing, sir? You're too expensive. I guess. Yes, you. You're the expensive, are the expensive one. Person You're the problem. So you were the one wasting money. You're the issue yeah, here. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So he did tell her that he was hoping to soon get a settlement check from the accident a year earlier that would stop his money troubles. So I guess he was trying to, like, go through insurance to get a payout from breaking his neck, which, like, fair. Yeah, I would, too. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure all of us would be going through insurance of some sort if we got in a car accident and broke our C2 vertebrae. We just hate that he's trying to get (laughs) a payout. (laughs) I don't think that we can fault him for that. But he he does eventually settle with the insurance company for the accident in the amount of $28,000. And what year was this? Do we know? Sorry. Did you say? Uh, Well, it would have been... kind of value-wise. It would have been like 1998. Oh, okay. So it's a lot of money. Pretty considerable amount of money in 1998. And especially for somebody who's living on social um, assistance and like barely has enough money to get by and has a gambling addiction. It's like $28,000... And two children and a wife. Yeah, like $28,000 doesn't seem like a lot of money, but to in to his eyes, that's like huge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. So, of course, we're not shocked. He refuses to give her any of the money, uh, any of it to Jennifer to help, you know, raise their children and stuff. Uh, and of because of the money, the entire family's welfare gets cut off. Because welfare is not going to pay you if you have a shitload of money. No. It's for those in need. And according to income and cost of living there, you're not in need at the moment. Yeah, and because they're like common law and had kids, her welfare got cut off too. Because their income is considered to be together, even though she gets zero of it. Oh my god, that sucks. Yeah, so, so, to make matters worse, he goes, I'm not giving you a dime, this is my money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. <laughs> so then so he was allowed to take her social assistance forever, but then when she comes into money, he gets to just poo-poo on her. Yeah. But then it literally this whole entire case is it gets worse though. I know. He so I Jennifer basically is telling him like it doesn't work this way. You're gonna like Welfare is not going to pay us. We're not going to get social assistance. You can't just hide this money. And so he's like, okay, I know what I can do. I'm going to cheat the system. I'm going to outsmart them. I'm going to spend it all. And then they have to give us our checks back because we won't have any money anymore. So he just goes and buys like lavish furniture and all this stuff, assuming that that would mean that welfare would just start paying them again. So wait, from the outside, they have, like, this low-income housing, and then you walk in, and it's, like, the Hollywood Hotel. Hell inside. Basically. Because he's decked out the inside of this probably small house. Yeah, pretty much. Or apartment. Yep. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, as we suspect, it doesn't work out that way. We're all shocked and confused. So welfare, like social services, tells the couple they have to sell all the furniture and things that they purchased and live off of that money because now they have been deemed to have this income and they're not going to get paid. 
It's you still have it. It's just in equity now. Yep. So liquefy those assets. That's it. That's your option. Correct. They just, you know. Ugh. Suck. Uh not they, <laughs> Nelson. Nelson sucks. Him. So he yeah. starts to Family sell it all. Lovely. He sells it all, but again, doesn't give her a dime. Jennifer doesn't see a cent of that money. Like he's not he's still not giving her money for food or anything. Uh, he spends all his time at the bar and at the casino, and social services still won't restart her payments until Nelson hands them a check for the money. So she literally is at the social service office, and she's like, I don't know what he did with the money. I haven't seen any money. I don't even know where he is. Like, I need to feed these mm-hmm. babies. And they're just like, sorry, no. Yeah, they're like, go find your husband. Ask him what happened. So she leaves the social worker's office and goes to the cops. She goes to the RCMP pleading them to help her and getting her welfare check back. An RCMP officer goes back to the office with her and her welfare is reinstated. Okay. Yeah. So she got that sorted That's out. It's like the for... ultimate can I speak to your manager move. It really is. She went straight to the RCMP. <laughs> good on you, girl, though. That. Like, she had to feed her kids. But, like, that's a good mom. Yeah, she just did what she had to do to get those babies fed. Yeah. Pretty much. So, not shockingly, she has her tubes tied. She's like, I'm having no more kids with this asshole. Or ever again. Uh, If this is her experience so far, I don't blame her. Yeah, so these babies are four months old. She has her tubes tied. She's like, I don't want any more kids with Nelson. I don't want any more kids at all. Um, she's still desperate to make it work for the girls with him, though. And then, so after the surgery in March of 2000, they got married in a civil ceremony at Town Hall. And he knew that she had her tubes tied, right? Yeah. He wasn't okay. helpful at all after that surgery either. Didn't think so. No. He was horrible to her. Caseworkers were regularly visiting the home after the issue with the $25,000 check. So after that, like, social workers and stuff started to come over quite often just to, like, make sure that they had food and diapers. Um, And Nelson, like, wasn't helping at all. So she was actually quite happy to have the caseworkers coming over and kind of helping her out and looking out for her kids and... um, Again, Nelson could pretty much at this time be found, like, eating fast food in his car in, like, the KFC parking lot or gambling at slot machines instead of being at home. And, like, everyone knew that Jennifer had... that photo, it looks like he did that. <laughs> yeah. But, like, everybody knew at this point that he wasn't giving her money and, like, wasn't providing for his family at all. And then people would just see him, like, sitting in KFC parking lot eating all day long like not going home just like not a good look dude no like what the fuck were you doing there buddy i saw you at kfc for four and a half hours yeah pretty much so the girls are about a year and a half old the couple decides to move from gander to the big city they move to st john's which is uh, a bigger city in newfoundland and they stay there for a good period of time Nelson actually got a job here, and Jennifer was, like, pretty happy about that. He was making some money, and he was out doing stuff. He was cleaning apartments. Um, But she somehow... confidence, too. Yeah, and, like, but somehow she still never had any money for food and diapers, and Nelson was still constantly disappearing. Okay. 
She eventually finds one day when he's gone $15,000 in $100 bills and cash in an envelope that he was hiding from her. Uh, okay. Yeah. That is a lot of money. Yeah, wait till you hear what he does, though. So she calls him out. She's pissed. She's like, the fuck? Like, I don't have money for food or diapers, and you have 15 grand in cash sitting in a bedroom? Like, literally what? Give me money. So he laughs. He just laughs and goes, oh, you found that, hey? Goes into the bedroom, gets three $100 bills, and goes, yeah, I'll give you some money. Brings the three $100 bills out and then just take, takes a lighter and lights them on fire in front of her. Yeah. That is disgusting. Yeah, so... so like, one for her, one for each of the kids kind of thing? I don't even know, but she's, like, pissed. She's like, I'm leaving with the kids. She's like, I'm going to pack up. I'm out of here. And he's like, you're not going anywhere and tries to take her driver's license away. But she manages to, like, snatch her purse and she called the police. Good. Yeah. So her and the girls, they stay at a local transition house for a while, which for anyone who doesn't know what a transition house is, it's sort of like a safe home for women and children fleeing domestic violence. It's like a place for them to stay and kind of exactly what it sounds like transition into finding their own um home transition home and a safe home are a bit different a lot of the time a safe home is actually um like the address is unknown um it'll more protective custody it's a lot more protected than a transition house where like a lot of the time if there's a transition house in your area you know where the transition house is whereas a safe home is actually just like a, a home somewhere like in a residential area that nobody actually knows is a safe home Because I've worked at both, Mm -hmm. and I had to be very secretive about when I was going to the safe house versus the transition house. It's just, like, known that it's there. But both Yeah, usually they have, like, a big sign out front. Yeah. They're not secretive at all. But both are geared towards women and children that are either fleeing domestic violence or homelessness and, and kind of working towards getting more independent. So her and the girls were at the transition house locally, um, but of course Nelson starts harassing her with phone calls again about how he's going to change, he's going to make sure that there's food and diapers in the house for her, please come home, blah, yada, yada, yada. We know the drill. The abusive cycle. Exactly. We've heard this before. Yes. Um, And the phone calls became incessant, and like we've seen in so many cases like this, um, she does go back. So she returns to the home and social workers start keeping a very close eye on the house again. Um, They would drop by and visit pretty frequently. And again, Jennifer really didn't mind because she felt safer when they were there. And she kind of liked having people around who cared for the girls. Yeah. The social workers. Like you said, helping hands. Yeah. But the social workers at this point in St. John's pretty much tell Jennifer that if the situation doesn't improve and they continue to see this pattern occurring... That she's going to basically have to choose Nelson or her children. Yeah, that's kind of what I was expecting you to say. It's the well-being of the children at the end of the day. Yeah. And this is a really scary cycle and it's getting more and more aggressive. So I think that's the fair move. Although I never agree that children should be taken away from their parents. Sometimes they have to be taken away from their parents. 
Hey friends, just a quick reminder, if you like hanging out and you want to see more of us, please visit our social media platforms. You can find us at Podcast by Proxy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have a business, podcast, or a story that you want featured on our show, we would love to hear it. Email us at podcastbyproxy at gmail.com. Katie and I are so appreciative of every single one of you for being here with us. If you want to support the show even more, please don't forget to hit the follow button wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Growing the show means we will be able to invest more time and money into bringing you more stories like the one you're hearing right now. To donate to the podcast one time or on a monthly basis, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash podcast by proxy. Now let's get back to it. Hey there, I'm Sydney. I'm Jess, and we're the hosts of Malpractice Podcast. Our show is about medical true crime, the history of healthcare, and dope modern science. Super dope. <laughs> Join us every Wednesday to hear us cover all kinds of topics, from Theranos and the story of Elizabeth Holmes, to the DuPont chemical scandal, to the history of lobotomies. If you love humor, science, true crime, twists and turns, and captivating interviews of really, really smart and inspiring people, Malpractice Podcast might just be the show for you. And we could be your new best friends. (laughs) If you like what you're hearing, you can check out our show wherever you listen to podcasts or find us on YouTube for copies of our episodes. And don't forget, Malpractice Malpractice Makes makes Perfect. perfect. Jennifer and Nelson moved back into the Edgewood apartment complex in Gander. Uh, it was Jennifer that decided to move back to Newfoundland. She basically said, I'm leaving and I don't care if you come or not. And he decided to move back with her. But she wanted to be closer to family who could, like, help her out. Because she was just really isolated with only him in St. John's. And it was quite a bigger city than she was used to. And two and, young children. Yeah, it was just a lot. She was like, I, I need to go. Nelson's brother Mervin. this is where Mervin comes into play, he would also come by at this point and help Jennifer out. Like, he'd just come over. He was a really nice guy. He'd give her $50 here and there for food and necessities because he knew that his brother was being a piece of shit. Um, but they kind of had to be secretive about a lot of these interactions as well because Nelson would, like, constantly accuse them of having an affair if he, like, saw Mervyn talking to her. Of course he did, yeah, because he's also really insecure. Yeah. Uh, at this point, too, Nelson's pill usage started to ramp up because uh, he because he, of the car accident and his neck break and everything. He had painkillers. And at this point, they kind of started running out at like alarming rates. And he would make up excuses, like say he had excruciating stomach pain or like a random headache so that he could go to the hospital and get morphine shots. And Jennifer was like, he was fine. And then all of a sudden at the hospital, he would be like. I'm in so much pain. I'm dying. And then he would get the pills. Yeah. And then at this point too, this part's really weird. He started accusing the hospital of lying to him about having cancer. He said that he had cancer and everyone was lying to him about it. Which like, I don't get whatsoever. Lying to him saying like, no, sir, you don't. Yeah. He was like, no, I do. Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah, so. Great, okay, so he's playing the cancer card, too. Like, what do you want, chemotherapy? Like, that's not going to make you feel some type of way, except for, like, trash. Mm. So, like, I don't know what it is that you're looking for besides sympathy. Like, I I don't, I don't really. I don't know, it's like you're risking your life. Like, yeah, you could be fine, but chemo might do some super weird things to you if you don't actually need it. I guarantee he actually didn't think this far through, because he doesn't seem like the kind of person that would think this level, uh, 
beyond the surface. But it's just a really weird point in the story for me. Mm. Okay, I agree. I think it is. It's a yeah. point. A it, it's a little bit strange. He's stepping up his manipulation. He definitely is stepping up his manipulation and like his uh, level of like not living on planet Earth. Like where, what, what universe are you living yeah, in? Yeah, he's sir? in Nelson's world. Yeah, he's definitely uh, moving further away from reality. So he decides that they should move to PEI. <laughs> okay. Jennifer's sister Susan was living in PEI and working at a fish plant and he was like, yeah, we should go there and work there together. So Jennifer's like, all right. So, and this actually would have been a good move because, like, the fish plant was good money, good work and everything. But Nelson quit after four days and said he wanted to go back to Gander. There's the work ethic I'm looking for. That's what I look for in a man. Yeah. And, again, this would have been fine. Like, you people are allowed to decide a job's not for them. But they live on social assistance and you have to... So social assistance is paid by the province, not by the federal government. And you have to live in a province with an address for 30 days in order to receive assistance from that government. So they would have lost their social assistance from the province of Newfoundland when they moved to PEI. They would have had to live in PEI with a fixed address for 30 days in order to receive social assistance from PEI government. And then they also would have had to do the same when they came back. So they're going to go two full months now without any income. Without because, any. Because he chose t- to move there for no reason. What he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So okay. they had no money at all. The Salvation Army was able to help the girls and Jennifer get a motel temporarily. But Nelson's accusations at this point towards Jennifer and Mervyn's affair, quote unquote, starts getting worse as well because Mervyn was like just trying to help her out saying that they could come and stay with them um, or that he would get them a place kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. Nelson was basically saying that Mervyn wanted Jennifer and the twins for the, like a perfect little ready-made family. He was like convinced that his brother wanted to take his whole family when really his brother he was, was just, just trying to swoop in there. He was just trying to do oh the thing God. that Nelson wasn't doing, which is just provide the basics for them. Like feed and clothe your children for you so they don't die. Yeah, he was literally just trying to help her with a dire situation, and Nelson was pissed and was like, you're trying to take my wife. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, yeah this guy's just a lot. But. Yeah, oh. and so Mervyn actually offered to house Jennifer and the girls, like, at his place while waiting for a new apartment that they were getting to be ready like to live in. Idea. And he said Nelson was not welcome. And as soon as Nelson heard about this, well, it was because Nelson wanted them to sleep in the car. Their, like, apartment wasn't ready or something, but he just, like, didn't tell them that. And then was like, oh, it's fine. We'll just sleep in the car. And so she freaked out and was trying to figure out what to do. And Mervyn was like, you and the girls can come here, but he can't. And then all of a sudden, when he found out that his brother, like, was offering to give them a place to stay, he, like, whipped out a credit card and said he'd get them a room. Well, yeah, because God forbid his brother makes him look bad. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, once again, not about them, just about one-upping his own brother. Completely about him and his yeah, own and ego. how he's perceived. Yep. 100%. I know a few of these. Yeah. So, once again, they moved back into the Edgewood Apartments in Gander in June of 2002. There's literally no furniture, uh, but Jennifer kind of just made do with what they had and was just happy to have a place 
to call her own again because they had really just been bouncing around and then they'd kind of been homeless for a while now. Uh, Nelson at this point, not home very often and he was just really unpredictable to be around. So she didn't even really mind that he wasn't home. Um, like there was easier that way. Yeah. Like there's a story, um, she, Jennifer had a clock that she really liked that she had picked up in PEI when they had been there for their four day stint or however long they managed to stay there. (laughs) Um, yeah. She had this clock that she liked so much and she had managed to bring it back. And so it was like one of the only things in their apartment because they had no furniture. They didn't even have curtains for the window or anything at this point. It was literally just an empty apartment that they're living in. And he, one day he's angry. He just walks out, grabs the clock, smashes it on the ground and walks back in his room. <laughs> yeah. Okay then. Yeah. There was also an incident, um, so the girls, I mean, they're young, they're little toddlers, so, you know, they have, toddlers like to listen toddlers. to the same kid songs over and over again and sing them, like, they get on one song, and then, you know, we Baby all, Shark we all know Baby Shark, we all know. Mm-hmm. So, they're, they're taking a drive, and Jennifer, like, plays this cassette tape in the car for the girls who are singing along to Baby Shark, do-do-do-do-do-do in the back seat, and... I shit you not, uh, Nelson ejects. He throws it out the window. Yeah. I knew it was coming. It just sounds like a piece of shit. I can't believe you guessed that. Yeah, he took it out, threw it out the window and goes, I hate those youngsters. They hate you too. Don't worry, buddy. (sighs) Yeah. Those are your own. Wait, was he saying that about the people singing? No, his children. Or about his own kid. Okay. His own kids. Because first he said, I hate Krista. And then he had said, I hate those youngsters. It's written in the book as I hates, like with an S at the end. I hates Krista. I hates those they youngsters. They hates you too, boy. <laughs> Just like what? God. Yeah. So, yeah. We've made it to about August 3rd, 2002. Um, it's the evening. Jennifer decides that she's going stir crazy. She wants to take the kids to the park. She just wants to get out of the apartment. She's tired of, like, looking around at what they don't have, basically, is how she worded like it. Like, walls. Yeah. She had, like, cut an old bed sheet and hung it up on their front window as curtains. Like, she was just sick of sitting and staring at what they didn't have. She wanted to go do something. So... She forces Nelson because he really didn't want to go, but she forces him and they go to a place called Cobb's Pond, which like had a park for the kids. It was a few kilometers from the apartment. Nelson stayed in the car and watched Jennifer play with the girls for over an hour. He just sat in the car. This guy was like so uninterested in his children and being a parent. If I've ever seen it. So uninterested. So uninterested. So Jennifer's just like unbothered though. Let, she just doesn't give a shit about what he's doing. Why did you let her even think when she said you she was pregnant that you were even remotely? Like I get that he wasn't interested, but why wasn't he more like, "Don't have those kids. I don't want them." Well, said he just was like distant and kind of was like, "Meh, do what you want." I mean, she was really excited, so I don't know that that was even something that he like thought was an option and nor do i mean it's not his choice whether she has those kids or not it's her choice um and she wanted them but 
I think the reason that he kept, like, manipulating her to come back is because he just, like, couldn't stand the thought of being alone. And, like, she wa- he wanted her to be there to, like, cook for him and clean for him and provide for him and just do things for him. Like, it wasn't really about wanting, like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like... It seems like he's fighting so hard in these cases to, like, keep her there to just... Because he's using her. She's be useful to him. To her? Yeah. She's useful to him. That's it. Their dependence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Their tax so, breaks. Yeah. So the girl, the girls and Jennifer come back to the car after about an hour of playing. And when they got back in the car, Jennifer was like, I still don't want to go home. Let's go to Little Harbor. So Little Harbor is like a pretty remote area with like a swimming area. And they also had new swings there. That's why she wanted to go there because she knew that they had installed brand new swings. It was about a 10-minute drive from where they were. So once again, Nelson didn't interact with Jennifer or the kids the entire time that they were playing at the park. He just sat by the beach, by the wharf, and just, like, watched people swim. So, like, he couldn't – he didn't know how to swim and was actually terrified of water, but he literally just sat near the water and stared at it for hours. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I understand appreciating the water and the scenery, mm-hmm. but, but if you don't like the water and your own family is there actively doing something, mm-hmm. change your priorities, buddy. A little weird. Yep. So the next morning is August 4th, 2002. The family had planned that day to go to what's called Gander Day. It's an annual demolition derby that brings like everybody out into the town. It's like a big celebration there. Uh, Jennifer got the girls dressed and ready in the morning and fed them and then she needed to get ready herself but of course they were being toddlers and it was pretty hard for her to get anything done. Mm-hmm. Now in a move that surprises Jennifer, Nelson actually offers to take them to the park so that she can get ready. He goes, oh want me to take them so you can do your hair? She's like, you've never offered to spend time with these children in the entire time they've been alive. And like also concerned her because she went there this crazy and she literally didn't even know if he could take care of them himself like she was like i don't even know if he knows how to strap them in a car seat yeah i don't know okay at this point though she was just happy that he was trying and she didn't really want to argue so she was like okay don't be long though because i'm not going to be that long like don't take them for a long time Yeah, like, I need 30 minutes. Like, don't be gone long. Yeah. So, the next little bit is was what Nelson says happened. So, it's Nelson's version of events. Oh, no. He loads the girls into their car seats, and he asked them where they wanted to go. It was an overcast morning, and they said that they wanted to go back and play on the swings. So, he made the drive to Little Harbor, where they had been the night before, and... According to Nelson, once they got there and parked, he took the girls out of their car seats and put them down each one at a time. And then when he closed the car door, he had a massive seizure. He said that he fell and he recalled seeing one of the girls running, but he couldn't remember what direction that they were running. The twins were afraid of his seizures and they would normally like run and hide from him when he was having one. So that kind of makes sense. But there was no witnesses to this at all. And when he finally came to, he saw Krista floating in the water and he was confused and didn't know where Jennifer was. And because they both didn't know how to swim, 
His next move was to jump in the vehicle and just drive home to get Jennifer. And on his way home, realizes that he left Karen there as well. What? Yeah. So one of your kids is drowning and you're like, oh, I can't swim. I can't possibly go try and get her. Like, even if I couldn't swim, I'm a fully ass grown adult. I'm going to jump the fuck in and try. Or like, I'm going to try. Or flag people down close by. Don't go drive a few kilometers home. Yeah. And like have to like explain it to your spouse and then go back. Well, and he says he he panicked and that's why he left the other kid. He like completely he just panicked and jumped in the car and was like, I need Jennifer. I mean, I guess if again, if this was actually the truth, which I don't believe again. We've seen someone after a seizure. They're pretty out of it. Mm -hmm. I don't even think that someone could just come to from a seizure and hop in a car and drive. Yeah. I mean, this this honestly could have happened. We, I don't think we'll ever know what the real truth is here. I'm just going to, like, put that out there now. Uh, it's possible with I the level of, that. with the level of seizures that he had at the time um, and his mental state and the level of, like, ability that we know he's at in terms of mentally, like, this fully could have happened. Um, so... Anyways, Jennifer's at home getting dressed. She had literally just gotten out of the bath and she had a towel on her hair and Nelson bursts through the door and says, Krista's in the water and and I can't find Karen. So Jennifer's like, wait, what? And like literally just runs out of the house. The towel actually like fell off of her head just outside of the apartment and that the police like found it there when they went back there. But... So she's running to the car and Nelson goes, I just remembered Karen's in the car. And then they get to the car and obviously Karen's not in the car. So Jennifer's like, you just said Karen was in the car. Like, where is she? And he goes, oh, I left her down there. And she's like, where? And he's like, oh, they're both at Little Harbor. So the two of them get in the vehicle, race back to the lake to to try and find the girls. They find Krista still in the water they can see that she's still alive apparently but they couldn't get to her because jennifer couldn't swim either though we find out later that the paramedics literally just walked in and grabbed her so like they could have tried like i said like walk up to the point where you can't swim anymore i'm so confused by this but whatever i'm not i'm not given you've always lived around water even if you can't swim, you've likely been in up to your knees and waited in water and cooled off. Yeah. I mean, I whatever. I'm not victim blaming a mother that no, can't no, no. swim and what she chooses to do in that moment. Like, I'm just saying it's odd to me that all the paramedics had to do was walk in, but neither one of them could, like, even try to get her. I don't know. So they're just, like, panicking. Oh, I agree. Because they can't swim. They can't get to her. And they can just, like, see their child dying, which I imagine is horrific. Um, I can't imagine how helpless she felt. But Jennifer tells Nelson to go get help. And he goes to a local gas station. Paramedics arrive. And like I said, they just walk into the water and pull out Krista's body. But nobody could find Karen at this point. Um, Jennifer had kind of been, like, walking around the different areas and she couldn't find her um she ended up being found 25 feet from shore and she was pronounced dead on scene also drowned yes krista though did survive long enough to be taken to the hospital and she died the next day 
Did she wake up at all? No. Her heart, I'll get to there, but her heart stopped and they weren't able to revive it until like an hour and a half later. So she was alive, but completely brain dead. Too long, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nelson had another seizure in the police cruiser on his way to the hospital with them. Um, So they like witnessed him have a seizure in the vehicle. Probably helped his case. Great. Yeah, they still don't believe him at all. But the police, he tells the police, quote, I love my daughters, my own flesh and blood. Weird. At the hospital. What are their middle names? (laughs) Literally. uh... Yeah. So they get to the hospital and attendants take Krista into the trauma room. They take Nelson and Jennifer to the waiting room. But by the time Krista is admitted to the hospital, like I said, she didn't have any heart rate and they restarted her heart after like an hour and 15 minutes so she was on life support but brain dead karen was pronounced dead Mm -hmm. immediately um and jennifer didn't know this yet because she like didn't even know if they had found her she actually thought that maybe she could have like made her way into the forest and could have been found alive so like she had no idea that they found her that was my dog shaking her head (laughs) um (laughs) that they found her like 25 feet from the shore not alive so that's truly devastating it is yeah rcmp officers including constable terry trainer who would later be corporal trainer he was with the rcmp major crime unit they arrive at the hospital and they begin taking photos of both the girls bodies they gave the direction to the hospital staff that uh, nelson and jennifer both could not have any access to the girls unless they were accompanied by rcmp Due to, obviously, their history with child services and Nelson's history in general, they were Mm -hmm. very suspicious of Nelson's involvement in this. In front of cops at the hospital, Nelson, like, comes out of the family waiting room and just starts poking around the hospital, like, looking in cupboards and stuff. And the nurses, like, think... to steal drugs, do you think? Correct, yeah. They call hospital security. Yeah. And oh my God. Nelson's like, oh, no, I was just having an episode. I was just having an episode. Like, no, you were just looking for drugs to steal, but okay. The okay. more dramatized, little... dramatized version of what a se- what we think a seizure is. And then there's also what's called... I'm dramatized. They're like petite mall, I think they're called. It's like grand mall and petite mall uh, seizures. And it's essentially a small seizure. And that grand can just mall, yeah. be like you appear really out of it or for nelson he would like pat his stomach so all of a sudden he would just kind of go into like a trance and pat his stomach and say the word what um so seizures can present really differently depending on their severity and the person fair i thought all of his were like crazy intense no a lot of them were but not all From the hospital, Nelson and uh, Jennifer are taken to the police station in separate cruisers. They take them in separate vehicles. Nelson was questioned for hours, and he actually went back to the lake with the RCMP to explain exactly what happened. Jennifer was finally escorted home with the police officer, and she was greeted there by Nelson, who was already back, as well as her dad and her sister were there, too. Okay. Uh, So the next morning at 5 a.m., doctors told Jennifer that Karen was dead. This is when they tell her. It's the next day. 
uh, that Karen did not make it and that Krista was alive and on life support but completely brain dead and that they were going to have to take her off the life support. And so that day she said goodbye to both of her babies at the hospital and she had to basically realize now and live with the fact that her three-year-old babies were both dead. So. Oh my God, that poor mother. Yeah. Super devastating to read about as well because the book that I read was actually written by an author and Jennifer Hicks. So it was like completely from oh. her point of view of the whole story. It's very interesting. Wow, yeah, I purchased it for $4.99 if you would like to read it. I had to pull information from other sources, too, obviously, because, like, the book is really just her account of what happened from, like, her point of view and everything. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of other, like, police stuff that I had to pull, like, case files and stuff. But anyways. So at the hospital, obviously, Jennifer is finding out that her children are dead. It's the worst day of her life. And Nelson didn't show any emotions at all. He actually stayed outside of the room because she, like, held both of the girls to say goodbye to them. He stood outside of the room and watched from the glass. Yeah, he's separating himself from it. Mm-hmm. So for the Ugh. girls, for the girls' funerals, Jennifer chose matching green dresses and Winnie the Pooh sandals, which murders my soul. And she picked out matching white caskets for them. Oh my god! I know. Uh, while Jennifer was asleep one day, Nelson actually made her sister pack up all of the girls' stuff and get rid of it. And Jennifer, like, woke up in the middle of her sister packing up all the girl's stuff and was like, what are you doing? And Nelson was, and she was like, oh, Nelson told me to get rid of this because it would make it easier for you. And Jennifer was like, you have fucking five minutes to put all of this back where it belongs and get out of here. She was unhappy. Yeah, I would want a shrine if I were her. I would want nothing moved. So in the back of her head, Jennifer always, like, wondered if... Nelson actually did drown their girls. It's just something that she always thought could have happened. How could she not? Yeah, or like, did he do it? And did he do it intentionally? Um, and another thing that she noticed in the days after the girls passed, the girls' car seats were missing, and she would find out later that they were found at the dump the day after the girls drowned. Okay. So meaning he like took their car seats to the dump and threw them oh. away. Yeah. No, I get that. I just, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah. And like his behavior over, yeah, his behavior over the days after the funeral got like worse and worse. At one point he said something along the lines to her of, I've got something in the back of my head that I'm going to take to my grave. That's like kind of a secret, but I can't tell you what it is. Yeah. Jennifer asks if he, if he meant that he killed the girls on purpose and he denies it, but he then admit. Uh, oh, this part is horrible. Not that all of this hasn't been terrible, but after this, he manipulated her into driving into St. John's with him to, quote, go shopping. And when they got there, he was like, oh, yeah, I don't have any money to go shopping or to get a hotel or to do anything. And then he locked her in the car and, like, forced her to stay in the car with him. She wasn't allowed to get out to go to the bathroom. She wasn't allowed to get food or anything for four days until he managed to Where were they going to the bathroom? They weren't. 
in her book she was like, like you, she was like i don't know what happened to i guess if you're not eating or drinking yeah she's like i had to pee so bad and then eventually i just didn't i don't know what my body did with the liquid and reabsorbed it probably you're so dehydrated yeah, so for like three to four days, she was forced to stay in the car, even though she was like telling him that she needed to get out and stretch and her legs hurt. And he was just like, no, but like wouldn't really speak to her either and was just being really weird and like locked her in a car for four days. Um, and at this point, the police are looking for them as well, obviously, because they just like mm-hmm. went missing. So he and eventually like... Essentially. Yeah, he eventually, like, kind of falls asleep and she's able to, like, get out of the car and she, like, flags down some guy in the parking lot and just, like, asks for food and the guy didn't have any food to give her at the time, but he said he would be back later and he would bring her something to eat and then the guy went and called the police and so the police eventually found them and... Again, Nelson suffers uh, seizures in the police cruiser when they pull him in to question him and uh, his license was taken away. Well, it's a stress response, buddy. You're having seizures when you know you've done something wrong and you're busted. Mm-hmm. So shortly after this, the police came back again and took Jennifer and Nelson in separate vehicles again. And at this point, the police offer Jennifer a clean break from Nelson and she takes it. That night, she packs up all her belongings um, and the girls' belongings. She said she didn't know what he would do with them if she left them. So she packed up all of her stuff and all of their stuff in bags and she was given a ride by the police to a ferry that would like take her over to the mainland and then over to PEI where she could stay with her sister. But eventually Nelson and his mother figure out where she's staying, like what sister's house she's staying at and keep calling the house incessantly once again, trying to persuade Jennifer to come back to him, claiming that like he couldn't have done it. He couldn't have hurt his own kids. Pearl is involved saying, like, you know he wouldn't have hurt them. Like, I don't, but okay. Um, Again, we're in a very classic domestic abuse cycle. This one is just super bad. Um, And, yeah, basically she does end up going back. Yeah, again, we can't fault her because this is something that happens. It is a vicious cycle. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and... And we see that it continues to be a pretty vicious cycle. Um, I'm not even going to go too much more into it because it's very much the same song and dance. Um, so that does that does continue to occur. But after the girls drowned, when Nelson was questioned by the police, remember I said he was questioned for like a pretty lengthy amount of time. They immediately thought his mm-hmm. story was really weird. Like they thought his story was strange and they immediately thought that he intentionally drowned them. And... Not only did they have their suspicions, along with the girls' car seats at the dump that they found, they also found tons of pictures of the girls, including all of the negatives of the photos. Yeah. Okay, I... Like, when someone says, oh, I accidentally threw away some photos, that's one thing. But when you find the negatives, too, you're like, you were eliminating them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you weren't just trying to get rid of some other stuff. You were fucking eliminating them. Yep. Uh, he sticks to his story, though. He says that the girls ran onto the dock, and when Krista fell in, he panicked because he didn't know how to swim. He t- panicked and drove home, um, and he forgot Karen on the dock because of the panic. 
he was asked outright if he drowned his daughters and he said no. And he later called police and said that he hadn't been truthful and admitted to the seizure. Because the first time he was questioned, he didn't tell them about the seizure because he didn't want to lose his license. So he just called them and was like, "Which I, I got change my story of that too." So like, it's a place, yeah, to try and get out of it or find a loophole. But yeah, I hate so it. I posted on Instagram like last week. Now I guess on whenever this goes out, a couple weeks ago, about Mister Big Sting operations in Canada. So mm-hmm. basically. A Mr. Big Sting operation is a investigation technique. It was created by the British Columbia RCMP in the early 1990s. And essentially how it goes is the police will uh, form an undercover operation where they pose as like a fictitious criminal organization. So they have one one officer who's undercover who's not considered like the big main boss of the criminal organization. He's just like someone goes out and somehow picks up the person and gets them into this gang, so to speak, by offering them small jobs, 50 bucks here and there, whatever it needs to be for the specific circumstance to kind of get them in, to lure them in mm-hmm. They're you know, giving them in this case, he's feeding him. He's... We'll get into how how it works in this case, but okay. after they're after the suspect is kind of in, so to speak, they then reveal the big boss man who's considered Mr. Big, and the idea of the operation is that they tell the person that in order to be like fully indoctrinated into this gang, you have to reveal any past criminal activity that you've had, so. They'll either say like, uh, oh, we heard from so-and-so that you did this and I need you to be truthful about it so that we can clean the slate and get you out of it so that you can work with yeah. us. Kind of an, kind of an idea. Like, and we then, just need to know everything so we mm-hmm. can really back you. Exactly. If you're going to cover your ass, we need to know how bad it is. Yeah. And so the idea is that that would then elicit a confession. And then once the confession mm-hmm. is made, we get an arrest. So the police decide in this case that they need to do a Mr. Big Sting because they highly suspect that Nelson's involved, but they have no evidence whatsoever that it was intentional. February 2005, two years after the drowning, uh, the Mr. Big Sting operation begins. So Nelson comes home one day to Jennifer and says that he made $50. He said... He met a French man in a parking lot who needed help finding his lost sister. Um, the man's name was Steph Suave. <laughs> and he went by Suave. And he was actually an undercover RCMP officer, obviously. He had offered Nelson $50 to help look for his sister. He like showed him a picture of this blonde girl and said that his sister was addicted to drugs and gambling, and so maybe Nelson had been exposed to her or would have seen her, and he was really trying to find her because their mom was sick or something, and their mom wanted to see her one last time before she died. So, so obviously... the heartstrings? Okay. Well, that, and they obviously know his criminal profile well enough that they know that, like, 50 bucks is a lot of money to him. Like, this... You know what I mean? Like, they'll gear these investigations towards who you are. 50 bucks might not work on somebody else. But on somebody like Nelson, I mean, he'll do anything for $50. So 
He obviously says yes, and he then was introduced to another undercover officer whose name is um, Paul. And the two of them explained that they were actually involved in organized crime and they wanted to offer him a job. So over the next few months, Nelson was hired by this quote unquote criminal organization to make deliveries that he thought contained like smuggled goods. Um, And he was paid Mm -hmm. like over $4,000 for these deliveries. He started to feel like he was becoming pretty close with these guys to the point where he would like multiple times called called them his brothers. He was like, you guys are like my brothers, my bros. And he had actually like allegedly went out for dinner with Suave one night and Nelson, he, Suave says Nelson pulled out a photo of his daughters and told him that he murdered them. But this conversation was not recorded. Okay. So May 2005, uh, Suave told Nelson about an upcoming deal that could earn him upwards of $25,000. He's like, we've got this huge job coming. But he told him he could could only participate in this big job if Mr. Big, who was the big boss, approved. I'm sure they didn't say Mr. Big because that would give it away, but maybe not to Nelson. So Suave told him that they had ran a background check on him and that he would need to meet with Mr. Big to clear it all up before he would be allowed to participate in the big job. On June 9th, 2005, Nelson and Suave flew to Montreal. Um, They were going there for a delivery job, but while they were on their way, Suave took a call and it was Mr. Big, the boss man, who said that he wanted to see and meet Nelson and that he was in Montreal. So Suave drove Nelson to the boss's hotel and he was interviewed alone in his room by Mr. Big. He was confronted about the allegation that he murdered his twin daughters. So obviously this is still an undercover operation. This is a cop interrogating him. He just has no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, he's confronted about the allegation of his murdered daughters and he to- they told him that he needed to tell the truth so that the organization could, quote, deal with it. Um, He told Nelson that there was a drug dealer who was offering up information to the police on the girl's death. So they needed him to be honest so that they could figure out what to do about that. Uh, Nelson sticks to his story of having his seizure and his daughter's drowning being an accident. But after further questioning, he ends up changing his story, stating that he killed them because he thought family services would take them away from him. Well, yeah. If they'd known you were going to kill them, they would have. Yeah. So two days after meeting with the boss, he uh, he went with Suave to Little Harbor and showed him where and how he drowned his daughters. Um, this confession was recorded. Now, there's a few things here, obviously. Uh, there's a lot of money involved. And we're going to talk a lot more about all this stuff in the next episode. In part two of this episode, um, we're kind of coming to the end of part one. We've been here a while, but we have to think about the type of person that we're dealing with, the type of money that's being offered, and how much, like, how much coercion or, like, you have to tell us this or you're not going to be involved in this deal is going on here that could elicit a false confession. Yeah, I I 100% agree with that. There's a certain level of 
not blackmail, but a little. Like, if you don't tell me this information, and this mm-hmm. is what I think it is, then you're not going to be in on this big deal. Mm-hmm. You're kind of inclined to be like, no, I did that. Yeah, let's just move on with this. I got to be part of this deal. Because that yeah. guy doesn't give a shit about the kids. Exactly. And so... These are hard because I think a lot of the time this technique does work, especially when you have other evidence that supports the theory and you're just really needing that verbal confirmation. But in this case, like this is the only thing that we have. And this was elicited under quite interesting circumstances, in my opinion. And even their circumstantial evidence isn't great. No. I mean, a lot of like CPS style reports kind of thing like that. And the hospital visits. But I think there's a lot that he can get away with explaining because of his mental health. Yeah. And because he has these outbursts and forgetfulness and this and that. Mm-hmm. So I would just be hesitant. That's all. Well, yeah, of course. And like, um, I mean, my tone of this the entire time has been like, this guy's a piece of shit. Like mental health and all that stuff aside, like he's just not a nice dude to the people in his life. But that doesn't mean that, yeah. you know, this. Yeah, I don't know. This was obviously a, a crazy one because it changed case law and how Mr. Big Sting confessions are used in court. But um, definitely there's a lot of, you know, kind of up in the airs here. So in his confession, right. he did tell Mr. Big that he would rather be dead than his daughters be in the custody of his brother Mervin. He did tell them that he like hip checked them in the shoulder and then he goes like that and mo- motioned like nudging somebody. Um, like hip check them off the dock. Those are some big hips. Yeah, and so the the next day after this whole confession and everything, he had to deliver a package to St. John's and he had been paid upwards of $15,000 at that point for all the work that he had been doing. So he was super excited at the prospect of his salary increasing for future work now that he way too much money was passing his test with Mr. Big. Yeah. Uh. As someone who started out as someone that would 50 bucks would do, mm-hmm. he has made far too much money. And I completely understand why they think that the confession could have been financially coerced. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting about that, though? Like the whole thing, uh, actually, in the book when I was reading it, Jennifer said that she actually noticed Suave's truck at the cop shop when they went there. To, like talk to them for some reason and she told uh nelson she was like that's steph's truck like that's the license plate i know it is and he was like no it's not no like he wouldn't be here and like she was just like okay she's she said like in the back but of my mind like, like why were you using your real vehicle to be an undercover cop that seems silly as well. i don't know or, like, maybe it was an undercover good. vehicle and it was parked at the station. Like, who knows? But, but That's what I mean. I just feel like you'd be smarter than that. Yeah, I don't know. But she basically said she just dropped it. And in the back of her head, she was like, nope. Like, I know that that's the, the license plate number. But I'm just going to let this one go. Like, you do you. It's in her so, favor. So let it go, girl. Yeah. So, obviously, like, these confessions are all recorded now. And he thinks he's doing a big job. Uh, June 13th, 2005. Suave had told Nelson that he needed to go to the airport in Gander, Newfoundland to pick up another plane ticket for a trip that they needed to do to Montreal. When Nelson arrived, police swarmed him and he was arrested and charged with two counts of first degree murder for the murders of his two daughters 
And he, so when the police swarmed him and arrested him, when he got there, he tried to call Suave and they go, don't, bo- don't bother. Like he's with us. Yeah. Oh, he's back there. Like that would be so, so funny. Yeah. So that's where he first figures out that this entire thing has been a ruse to get him to confess to the murder of his daughters. And that's where we're going to leave it today. We're going to it. leave this it there. Heavy. Yeah, um, Nelson's been arrested, and we're in for another wild ride next week. Yeah, I don't think there's any need to talk anymore, because I feel like I need the rest of this story before I'm going to have a formulated opinion, because so far I got big ones, but I need the rest of the story. So I think this is where we're just going to, like, love you and leave you, and see you next time we get back to the story, I guess. See you next week. I hope y'all sleep after this, because I won't. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me.